Welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich. Conversation is alive and well. And I'm thrilled to welcome a great friend to the podcast, someone I've interviewed many times on radio over the years. She's one of my favorite authors, but I'm not alone. She's a New York Times bestseller every time out of the box, Jacqueline Machard. She's won the Bram Stoker, the Shirley Jackson Awards, all kinds of acclaim for her first novel, The Deep End of the Ocean, which was the first book selected by Oprah for her book club. More than 3 million copies in print in 34 languages. Well, since that book, she's written a ton of other amazing novels, and her latest is the one we'll talk about today. It's called The Good Son. Lots of emotion and mystery about a mom who must help her son after he's convicted of a devastating crime, the crime of murder. Let's dive right into a fascinating conversation with a great lady as we go on mic with Jackie Machard. Jackie, it's been a few years, but it seems like yesterday we spoke about books and writing and all the cool things going on in your life, and I am just tickled to have you back for a dandy of a book called The Good Son. Welcome. Thank you. My favorite, favorite DJ of all time. Oh, my goodness. I have to live up to that now. (laughs) Well, Jacqueline. Classiest guy on the the air. Oh, you're very sweet. You're very kind. Well, we have a longstanding relationship uh, based on the writing, and then we became sort of uh, broadcast writing friends. And I love the work that you've done. And this is an, an interesting new novel because of how the idea came about. And you've talked about this publicly. Want to share with my audience how you got the idea for The Good Son, then we'll get into it. I would. It's uh, it's strange, kind of harrowing. And I wish that I knew. This is a true story, In though, of course, I exercised the novelist privilege of making it come out the way I wanted to instead of the way that it was in real life. But I was at a writer's conference. I was at one of those big writer's gatherings, uh, Writer's Digest or some of uh, some other one. I can't really remember what the venue was, but it was a hotel. And I was about to give a, a keynote speech. And I was standing in line to get my coffee. And the woman in front of me dropped her book. I picked it up and handed it to her. And I said, are you here for the conference? No, she said. And then she told me that she was visiting her son, who was only 19, is in prison. Mm -hmm. And he would be in prison for a very long time. Uh, He had killed the only girl he ever loved. They had been sweethearts since they were in the seventh grade. And he was so strung out on drugs at the time of the murder, he didn't even remember it happening. Um, he didn't remember seeing her as an enemy or what caused um, what caused that him to do that. And she uh, also told me, and this scene, in a sense, in a, the the way it shows up in the book is with a great deal more mayhem. But in the uh, she also told me that she went to the cemetery to put roses on the girl's grave, and the girl's mother showed up, and she was terrified. And but they they had been neighbors and they ended up crying in each other's arms. And the mother of the girl who had died said, you are still the luckier one because at least you can touch him. And I just not could not turn away from her. Mm-hmm. I was running up the aisle while they were introducing me because I stayed that long in the coffee shop mm-hmm. an hour with her. And I don't know who she is. I don't know her name. I I wish I could tell her about this. It's really an American story of 
sadness that is all too true because it does happen to families. And it's not just uh, crime and murder, but it can be the effect of drug abuse. In an instant, your life can change and that of your family. Everyone's life is touched by this. It's true that lot that we are all standing on that trapdoor. And mm. we we have to live in denial of that or we couldn't go on every day. But I think about my own sons. I have five sons, um, two of whom are still young teenagers and three of whom are grown up now. And I think how any of them in a slightly different circumstance, they've never been in any trouble except for aggravated parking tickets. Mm -hmm. But that's not because I did a better job or because I was so great at this. I think it was in part because of luck. Yeah. You you know, they're they're all kind um they say you have lots of luck but both kinds. That's very very telling. In fact, Thea who is our narrator who tells the story, she is a, a writer and a teacher much like you. And is is the case with most of the Jackie novels that are so engrossing. There's a sense of vulnerability right from page 1. Uh, we know that this is not a supermom. We know that this is us. <laughs> and the dad is us. I could relate to him as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit, though, and, and the story is as much a story of suspense and mystery, none of which we will tip our hands to, as it is a story of angst and forgiveness and redemption. Um, describe the scene. Uh, you've got a young boy, Stefan, who's a teenager, who's uh, had some issues with drugs, and then what happens? And he... Uh, is left behind when his uh, beautiful and beloved girlfriend with whom he's been, uh, he's loved her since he was in the seventh grade and they grew up together as children. She goes off to college. She starts a new life for himself, for herself, and he's intensely jealous. And then it all comes to a head one night when he goes up there and he still does not know exactly what happened. But the night ended with Belinda dying from uh, a, a blunt force injury. And he's convicted of the crime. But since he has no knowledge of it, he's convicted of manslaughter and only serves uh, four of a five year sentence. And when he gets out, he's not even uh, he's not even 21. He went into prison when he was 17 hmm. and the open the story opens. And in a sense, the story ends, not really, but sort of, uh, ends at a prison also. Right, right. But it opens at with Thea picking her son up at the gates of the prison. And I was thrilled that, you know, uh, that with that first sentence about I was picking my son up at the prison gates when I caught sight of the mother of the girl he had murdered. And I sweated blood over that for mm. weeks and weeks mm -hmm. because, you know, first sentence is so important. Mm -hmm. Prison is such an overreaching topic with so many tentacles. And uh, the impact of what prison does to the prisoner, but then what it does to him or her when they get out and the impact on the family and everything you wrote about was so identifiable. You know, people looking askance, that sense that, oh, my gosh, justice wasn't served. He gets very little sympathy or empathy from the people around him, which is, in a sense, human nature. But that plays out. And I love the fact, and I'm going to just toss in my own opinion, that the mom herself doubts her son. Because how can you not? I mean, you just don't know. 
And that's a terrible feeling to not to want to love unconditionally, but to say to yourself, oh, man, he he might have killed that girl. He killed that girl. He killed that girl. And what will he do next? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, she has to accept that he is guilty of this crime. And she finds herself almost I mean, this is her child, you know, her best beloved, her only child. And yet she looks at him and wonders what's he capable of. She also has an enormous, uh, to me, there's no use in doing this unless you're absolutely on the level with the way that people would really feel. Mm -hmm. And she resents him. Her colleagues at the college where she teaches, they don't want to know her anymore. Even her own family, her sisters and her mother and father are drawing back from her to a certain degree. And she feels that none of this was her fault. What has she done to deserve this kind of treatment? It was his, it was his choices that led to this. And so that ambivalence is a, I, I thought about this. I saw a, a Ted talk by Sue Klebold, Dylan Klebold's mother. Yes. And the, one of the Columbine shooters and, uh, it, it was devastating. She was eloquent and I could feel the audience draw back when she said she still loves her son. She always will love him. She wishes he was alive. And yet she simultaneously suffers the shame and the guilt and the, uh, and she will feel that way for the rest of her days. Yeah. It's, it's an incredible cross to bear. And, and sadly it's been been born by a lot of people millions of people across the globe across the centuries but um the the prison scenes um research that you do is extensive i know but what about the prisons did you visit one particular one or check in with people who have had the experience how did that go i did uh i i have have you ever gone into prison? Once, and I have corresponded with several prisoners through my late night radio show, and I have developed a, a relationship with some who have gotten out. I've, I've only been to one prison, but uh, tell us your experience. Well, when you, I haven't been for many years. I did not go, I tell, I'll tell you what I did do, but I didn't go into a prison for this story. But I have been before, and believe you me, when you walk into one of those places, you feel as you can be innocent as the driven snow and you still feel they're going to find something out about you and they're never going to let you out. <laughs> and when that door shuts behind you, it is a feeling of such uh, hopelessness and looking around you at people and the way that their eyes look and the fact that they know they have a long time to be here and that Everything is always going to be the same. And what I noticed most about the prison when I visited a number of times this back when I was a reporter was not that it was the lack of freedom that was the most awful, but the lack of privacy. There is nothing that you can do that someone doesn't observe. And all night long, there's a light burning, a dim light. It's dimmed while you sleep, but there's no darkness. There's no privacy. And people are talking and laughing and crying and screaming all all night long, 24 hours a day. And I think that is an extraordinary punishment. And and the adjustment when one leaves that environment, uh, Stefan has to go through this same horrible adjustment to the real world. One of the things I really enjoyed reading about, though, I know this is a novel, 
uh, I was rooting for him because, uh, of course, because he wanted to rebuild a life and not a life where he goes to college and does what all kids do at that age, but a life of his own. He stakes out an opportunity to build his own business. And I'm rooting, well, I'm the reader. I'm rooting for him to be, even before I know what's happening, to to be successful. <laughs> and desperately wants to make amends. Yes. That's one of the, he starts, he even starts this sort of philanthropy called the Healing Project, in which he connects people who are willing to be connected with the people who have caused them harm. And they, and they make restitution to them. I wanted it's to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you about that specifically in my chat, and that is uh, love the idea. I know it's probably not totally original, but uh, did you base this? It's totally this? original. No, I, I would. So I was wondering. I just made it up. I th- I'm thinking there should be chapters around the country because I know it is because people who do things, people who are not sociopaths, you know, people who do yeah. things that a drunk driver you know, uh, a, a burglar, you know, people who who committed wrongdoing, but maybe they want to change their lives. And like in one case, one of the fellows that Stefan met in prison, uh, he'd been a teacher who was had a was a drunk and who ended up causing the death of a young woman in a motor vehicle crash. And so he committed his uh, earnings going part of his earnings going forward with whatever he did to paying for putting aside a, a school fund for her two little girls. If there was a material way in which people could do that and it would be accepted, there is a forgiveness project. There is an na- uh, right. international organization where people uh, come together with the person who has uh, done wrong to their family and they struggle for forgiveness. But this project it what I thought, let people, it would give people who had offended the offenders a reason to live as well as the people that they had harmed. Mm-hmm. The toughest thing for anybody on planet Earth is to ask for forgiveness and not get it from the victim or the victim's family. And that occurs, let's just say in general, that occurs in this story to a certain extent. Um, that was some of the toughest stuff to read, but some of the most fascinating because that's real life. Uh, t- talk with us, share with us a little bit about uh, the victim's mother um, and and what her motivations are, not fully, but just as the victim's mother and how you flesh that out. Well, I really thought that she had, she had an ax to grind. She had an enormous amount of bitterness and it all was substantiated in the sense that she became an activist against dating violence. And, you know, dating violence is a huge deal because it's not recognized on the same uh, scale, Mm. even as domestic violence between husbands and wives is now. But there's a huge amount of uh, uh, battery and other kinds of violence uh, for girls in high school and college that really is not recognized. And so that was what Jill, uh, the the mother of Belinda, the victim, uh, devoted her life to uh, an organization that she founded called Stop Abuse Young or Say. And they were picketing, uh, picketing 
Thea and Stefan's house when he came home and uh, they were active around the country. And despite the fact that it was one more thing that prevented, we believe we are a society that believes in second chances, that we love someone who comes back from the abyss. But that's not really true Mm. because in practice, it requires a huge suspension of disbelief to hire someone who, you know, has done something horrible and it's or to trust that person in a in some kind of trustful relationship. And that's why so many people take their own lives or reoffend is because they freedom is not what they imagined it would be. One of the characters that stuck out for me was Rebecca, and I'll tell the audience why, because Rebecca is feeling great guilt and remorse over the fact that she was hired to sort of look after a person who had very serious drug issues and so forth and ended up, well, ended up in a bad place. And Rebecca has this sense of guilt. In this case, the the Healing Forgiveness Network that he started it really worked. <laughs> it worked in the kind of way that you hope it would work more often. So I, I, I wanted to say that because the, by no means is the novel disparaging and, and dark and totally gloomy. It's, it's got signs of hope throughout. That is a true story, too, Jordan. You know, uh, she was um, one of the daughters of a, a senator from Wisconsin, um, that the girl that died. The girl who died in the snowbank mm-hmm. um, was this incredibly talented, gifted uh, young woman who just could not beat back the demons of her alcoholism. And uh, so I based a part of the story on that story has fascinated me all my life because I I mean, all my adult life, because I can remember sitting in the Unitarian Church and watching the uh watching her funeral and seeing her two teeny tiny little daughters there and knowing that um, she was a good person and she loved her, her children. Hmm. There's another aspect uh, to all this, and that is the, uh, the cancel culture, if you will. In this case, Thea, the heroine of our story, the mom, has a pretty nice job. She's had it for a long time. But when all this stuff starts to bubble up and she's the mother of a convicted manslaughter issue. She gets the old uh, cold shoulder and it's much colder than just a shoulder. And that uh, unfortunately is happening a lot, uh, not with necessarily violent criminals, but with people who just disagree with the, the mainstream. I don't know if that was the point you wanted to make, but uh, I've, I felt I knew that story. I've heard that story before. Well, you're really not wanted here anymore. You're not fitting in with what we deliver. And while, while Thea could not be fired you know, technically she was a tenured professor. It was time for her to take a sabbatical Mm. and it was time for her to sort of stand back from any of the committees that she had been involved with. And again, this was by uh, part of what cancel, if we can call it cancel culture is, is that it is by association. It's not necessarily that you came in and, and, uh, behaved inappropriately or you caused something, it is your associations or your, um, your, your politics, your, your family's politics that end up driving you into this, uh, into this 
situation in which you are losing the things that you worked so hard to attain in your life. Yeah, and that was a point uh, that I I gleaned and I, I realized it does happen to people all the time. And sometimes it's more subtle as it was in this case, although it hit Thea like a ton of bricks. A couple of quick things. Number one, uh, you've written so many successful novels. For many, they categorize you in a particular area as uh, a woman who writes relationship stories, family okay. stories. But you've got a pretty good knack for suspense and mystery and keeping people on the edge of their seat. Is this something that you dig doing and you're going to do more of? You bet. <laughs> <laughs> I, when my buddy Scott Tarot said, I thought this was going to be a story about a meditation about reentering the the community after serving time. And then all of a sudden I was galloping along with this with this thriller. Like what happened? What really happened? You know, and who can you find this out from? Who can you find out uh, the truth about something that to which there were no witnesses? Yeah. And and so it was just very interesting to me. And I always want to I say, if there's a God, I say to God, God, send me a continuing character. But God never does. So I have to raise the bar myself in other ways. So you got to come up with a whole new uh, scenario to uh, to play out. But this one plays out on a lot of levels, which is why it's great. And of course, it's your writing and your style, which uh, we know and love so much. I've got to tell the audience, I'm on your list of you know newsletter people, and I love reading the stuff. But one particular recent entry had to do with your concerns with language. And I'm going to not use the word pet peeves, but I'll use the word pet peeves. The problems that people have by omission uh, when it comes to this beautiful language, irregardless of it. Oh, no, see, I did that on purpose. Irrespective of uh, anything else. Uh, Share with me your thoughts on where we are with language. Well, you know, we don't read. And there's the bottom line. And I know that if my children were were here, you know, of I uh, my children are not illiterate. I mean, they get good grades in school, but they don't read for, well, some of them read Mm -hmm. for pleasure, but not very many of them. And I have said to them, if you'll read a book, not a book I wrote, any book, I'll pay you this much, this much, this much. I was up to, I'm up to $125 now and there's no takers. They still think like, wow, you know, that would... There are just so much competitive media. And so as a result of that, you don't learn the idiom. You don't learn to be fluent in your own language. And it mm. does grind against me when I hear people on NPR. One of the uh, one of the descriptions I uh, cited was a guy using the word unsbeknownt. <laughs> really? <laughs> You know, I mean, this guy is has his own show. He's literate and ever unbeknownst. And then constantly I hear he's a clean cut kind of a guy as if he doesn't get his shirt dirty instead of clean cut, which the actual phrase was. And one of my grad students, I said, you know, she had written shoulda. This is a person getting a master's degree. Hmm. OK, hmm. and I hope she's listening because we joke about this all the time. And I said, write down what you think that's a contraction of. And she wrote should of. Oh, 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 <laughs> you know, my, my said, advice, okay. my advice to most people I run into these days is, would you please get a cast album of The King and I with Yul Brenner so you'll know it's et cetera and not et cetera. <laughs> right, right. 
pet right. peeve. And and um, or espresso. Oh, uh, yes. oh gosh. I know. Oh, gosh. Well, you and I are anyway. are. are, are are connected in our soul with that complaint, and we're going to keep fighting the war. Um, this is a great novel. It's called The Good Son. It's one of many in the in the uh, library. And I have to follow up with what you just said. Have your kids read any of your books? No. Well, one kid has read one book. That's amazing. She is. She's my hero. She's read one book of mine all the way to the last pages. And uh, but that's it. And I have nine kids. <laughs> we're not talking about one of three or one of two, I've made this offer to many people. I could be out a thousand bucks if they would all just read one of my books. New York Times bestselling writer with literally hundreds of thousands of fans and selling millions of copies. And you got nine kids with exception of one who read one book. I love that. That's, that's a, that's a book in itself. Got another. What do they say about the, the, to the person is in his own realm is not, there, there's that old saying. I can't think of it right now, but the 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 uh, I don't know. Well, the, I know the, I know I know the meaning you're trying to impart. And listen, I've been on the radio for nearly 50 years, believe it or not. And uh, my kids barely listened. And I kind of like that because I didn't want to be that guy on the radio to their friends. But it would be nice to know that they listened once in a while. Maybe they'll listen to right. this podcast. You are a delight, my dear. Thank you so much. I know that you're busy teaching and probably uh, have the plot lines for the next two novels, but whatever. Oh, Jordan, I do. I, I'm uh, I, I know 90 you. pages into the next one. We will have you back because every time you write Thank something, you. there's so much to talk about, as is the case with The Good Son. Thank you, my love. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. She's the New York Times best-selling author Jacqueline Michard. Her latest book, we've been talking about it, The Good Son, and it's a terrific read. For much more, visit Jacqueline Michard, M-I-T-C-H-A-R-D.com, and you will not be disappointed. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for publishing these podcasts. Chart Productions is where we produce them. And find out more about me at jordanrich.com. And thanks, as always, to you and the audience growing in numbers all over the world. We really appreciate it. And those ratings and reviews make a big difference. Thank you for that. Till next time, this is JR saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.